considering the, uh, the tabernacle and its furnishings, the place where God would deign to dwell among his people and at the, at the very heart of everything, the most holy piece of furniture there is, was the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts who is enthroned above the cherubim. It was a box made of wood and covered with gold. It was, and it was carried with poles. Those poles never came out of it. They were always there. And in it were the, the stones with the Ten Commandments carved on them and the, the jar of manna and Aaron's staff that budded. And there was a golden cover on it with, with angels facing one another looking down upon where the blood of the covenant would be sprinkled. This piece of furniture was most holy. And it did represent God's presence with his people, which is, which is why it was such a grievous sin to do what they did. The Philistines were encroaching and they went to take their stand at Ebenezer, but they were defeated. And while they asked why, what happened, they weren't serious in their inquiry. They asked it rhetorically. You know, they could have asked Samuel for real, or they could have asked the priest who had the Urim and the Thummim. But nope. They, they decided that the best course of action... They decided on the best course of action without asking God. They were leaning on their own wisdom, and um, it was a disaster. They decided to bring the ark with them into battle. God, you know, God surely is not going to allow himself to be defeated, allow his ark, this symbol of his presence. He's not going to allow that to be defeated, captured. He has to defend us, Right? wrong. Remember God's words to Eli, those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. You know, we've, we've listened to uh, Hannah's song. We've, Hannah, Hannah's song gives us sort of a roadmap for the book, and, and we've noticed in, in Hannah's song so far, the story has focused on that humiliation of the proud and the exaltation of the humble uh, as Eli's house collapses and Samuel rises to be a prophet, a priest, and a judge in Israel, bringing the word of God to Israel once again. But she also sang this. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Get your arrogance out of your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. Well, that is that holiness of God of which she's saying that's in the focus, that's in focus in our passage this morning. So the ark is gone. Israel lost 4,000 men, and then they lost 30,000 more. The priests, the high priests, the ark, it's all gone. Eli dies on hearing the news. Phineas' wife goes into labor and, and names her child in despair. Gloryless. And 
But this, and this is the point of our passage. The Philistines did not conquer God. Quite the contrary, God allowed the Philistines to conquer his people to chastise them because they did not regard him as holy. His people did not respect the holiness of God, so God allowed the unthinkable to happen. But you know, just as when Jesus died on the cross, what appears to be victory for the enemy is actually God winning the victory. The Philistines take the ark captive, or so they think. You know, we're covering two chapters and, and two verses. I've added two verses to what's in your bulletin. So let's dive in. We're in the first book of Samuel. You might want to make your way over to First uh, Samuel. We're in chapter 5, 1 Samuel chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, the word of the Lord. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and they brought it into the house of Dagon and put it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early in the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. Now, you may have heard somewhere along the line that Dagon was a a fish god. Uh, That goes all the way back to Jerome, I think. It's really a speculation based on sounding a little like the Hebrew word for fish. Uh, I don't think so. Dagon is attested in the Canaanite pantheon. He's he's Baal's daddy in in their way of thinking. And um, what they do here makes sense within their corrupted worldview. Um, They think Dagon gave them victory over Jehovah, and so they take the symbol of Jehovah's presence and they bring it into the temple of their God. You understand why they're doing that, right? It's a a symbol of the the conquest of Dagon over Jehovah, (laughs) but God makes Dagon bow down, face down. Okay, not that their idolatry is excusable at all, but you can sort of sort of get this one, you know, em- embarrassing positioning and all, uh, but maybe there was a tremor or something, maybe something knocked it over, right? So they put it back up. And, and yet even so, even if that's the case, they never really stopped to think that, We're having to put our God in his place. He can't even get up by himself. How is he going to help us? You know, that's really the mistake that Israel made too, isn't it? That led to all of this, thinking that they had to bring God into the battle with them. So they put him back in his place, but the next morning God had removed all doubt. It wasn't a tremor, no. 
God had made Dagon bow. And in fact, Jehovah had demonstrated his conquest of Dagon uh, rather than the other way around. Uh, Cutting off the hands and the head goes beyond killing, doesn't it? It makes a statement. The imagery has meaning because this sometimes happens in battle to conquered kings. Their hands and their heads are cut off. They might be put on display. It's making a point. It's putting an exclamation point on the conquest. Demonstrates the impotence of their God. We're told that they don't tread on the threshold of of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. But we're not told what they really thought about that. We're not told why they don't or anything like that. So I'm not exactly sure how to understand this. I guess at the very least it demonstrates a a lasting memory of the event. Um, But again, remembered how? Because they're still worshiping Dagon, so they clearly haven't really gotten it. Anyway, let's keep reading verse 6. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified them and afflicted them with tumors, But Ashdod, uh, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how these things were, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They said, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. But after they'd brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, they've brought the ark around, the ark of God around to kill us and our people. They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. It reminds you a little bit of what went on in Egypt, doesn't it? Um, They need to let the ark go, but they're reluctant to. And the longer they delay in letting the ark go, the worse it gets for them. It's there for seven months, so it gets really bad. Uh, It kind of looks like they must have been suffering um, from the bubonic plague or something very much like it. There's tumors. They, they recognize that somehow mice are connected with what they're suffering. Uh, we'll see that in the offering that they send back with the ark. But, but they're not ready to part with this golden box yet. They recognize that it's causing them to suffer, but they're not ready to part with it yet. Send it to Gath. Same thing happens. Send it to Akron. And then they freak out, right? Now, there are five Philistine cities. We're only told about three of them. And yet, when you see the offering that's sent back, it's pretty clear that it it attacked all five. So I don't know whether we're giving a little synopsis here or what. Um, The plague definitely affected everybody, though. And what's also clear is that they don't want that holy thing near them at all. Even though they're not quite ready to give it up. 
They, they won't give up the illusion that they've created where they conquer the God of Israel, and yet they can't handle the holiness of God in their midst. It's destroying them. Chapter 6. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us, with what shall we send it to its place? They said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return to him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, What is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, Five golden tumors, and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for the same plague was on all of you and your lord. So you must make images of the tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off of you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves away, home, away from them, and take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put in a box at its side the figures of gold which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Bet Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. You know, the priests and the diviners of the Philistines here, they're not right... But they're not entirely wrong either. They are quite right to recognize that a trespass has occurred. And so it would not do simply to return the ark. They need to return the ark with something of an I'm sorry payment. It's got to be costly, and so it's of gold. And yet it's not just a payoff without acknowledgement of the wrongdoing. And so this gold, it has to be connected somehow to their transgression and the punishment. And so they, they make it in the form of tumors and mice. Now, notice then... With, with the mice, especially if, if it is the bubonic plague. And maybe it's not. Maybe it's just two different plagues, mice and tumors. I don't know. But if it is, notice that they recognize the secondary cause. It's being spread by the mice. And yet, they still know it's God's doing. Just because you can explain it scientifically doesn't mean God didn't do it. That's an absurd conclusion to draw, actually. So so do this, and you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand doesn't turn away from you. So there's the offering, but there's also the test. Uh, I mean, if the Lord is not behind this, we don't really want to lose all that gold, and we don't want to really lose the ark either. I mean, we kind of hold Israel under our thumb with the ark, don't we? So... If it's, going to, if it's the Lord, surely we will know it. And here's how it's going to work. It's pretty simple. 
A mother is very protective of her nursing child. That's true of humans, but it's also true of animals. And not only that, it is uncomfortable for a mother to go very long without nursing. And a calf separated from its mother is just going just gonna to make all kinds of racket, and it's going to draw the mother to it, right? Um, and then notice, you don't usually take milking cows and hook them to a cart anyway, uh, but certainly these cows have never experienced a yoke. And for animals to pull a yoke, you have to train them for that. They have to work together. Well, if either of these moms hears his cat, the calf and refuses to go, this isn't going to work. You see how the, the deck is being really stacked against God here. You, 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 you see that? So... What the Philistines have done is what Gideon should have done the first time. See, Gideon did his fleece, but then he thought, oh, you know what, that could, that could happen naturally. Let me, let me switch it around, right, so, so that it proves the, the, the supernaturalness of it, right? Or, or remember when Elijah, with the great showdown with the prophets of Baal, uh, the, the fire was supposed to come from heaven and ignite the sacrifice, right? So what does he do in the middle of a drought? He drowns the wood in the little water that they've got. Because if you're going to expect God to prove his point, you don't ask for something that's ambiguous or small. You want it to be certain, right? So do the Philistines. So the men did so. They took the two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they, they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Bet Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They neither turned to the right nor to the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Bet Shemesh. Now the people of Bet Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The ark came into the field of Joshua of Bet Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Bet Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. So it was obvious then that it was indeed the Lord, right, uh, who had afflicted the Philistines. And, and so they see this supernatural taking away of the ark. They see it's received by Israel. And so the, the Philistines go home and, and they, they fade out of the focus of our study, story for a while. Now, why bet Shemesh? Well, I mean, there's an obvious reason that that's the, end, that's the Israelite town that's at the end of this road that they start on, right? But, you know, God is sovereign, and, and it, it goes deeper than that. Um, Bet Shemesh was special. It was one of the, the cities that was given to the priest. It's a priestly city. And uh, you remember the Levites, they don't get tribal lands, uh, but they did get some cities, and Bet, Bet Shemesh is one of them. What's more, um, Bet Shemesh belonged to a specific line of Aaron's descendants, the Kohathites, who were given charge of the ark. 
See how God has just sovereignly worked this so that the ark comes to just the right place, right? Uh, to what better place could the God lead the cows? And everything looks good, right? They burn the cart. They sacrifice the cows. Can they do that? Listen to the very first words of Leviticus, well, three verses in. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, which this is, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. So I don't think you were actually supposed to sacrifice a milk cow like this. And yet... I have to admit, I don't see any disapproval in the text. We're going to see the men of Bet Shemesh pay a pretty severe penalty in a minute. You know, the text isn't shy about sharing the disapproval, uh, and I just don't see it here. So to be honest, I can't tell whether God was mad at this or not. I don't think it's what it fits with what was revealed in Leviticus, but, but I'm not sure what you're supposed to do with these cows either. I mean, they have been on the most holy mission, right? You can't exactly put them in the barn and milk them now. These are holy cows. So what do you do with them? I don't know. But let's finish the story and we'll see where they definitely do go wrong, these men of Beth Shemesh. These are the golden tumors, this verse 17. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord. One for Mashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Akron. And the golden mice, according to the number, all, the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Bet Shemesh. And the Lord struck some of the men of Bet Shemesh because they looked into, not upon, I, I think into is a bad translation. I mean, upon is a bad translation. He, he struck the, some of the men of Bet Shemesh because they looked into the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them. There'll be some discussion around this. And the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Bet Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord? this holy God, and to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. Two verses into the chapter 7, And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill, and they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord from the day that the ark was lodged in Kiriath-Jerim, a long time past, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Now, prepositions are the trickiest part of learning in every language I've learned anyway, so I don't want to be too adamant, but it seems to me that if, if they'd looked upon the ark... Um, as in looked at it, first of all, it's hard to understand how this narrative would have even gotten to this point. How would they have seen the ark coming up the road, right? Um, I think more likely they're probably thinking, hey, okay, they, turn, they return the ark, but 
Did they take the stuff out of it? Something like that is probably what led them to look into the ark. Now, then there's a question of how many died. Uh, and I, here I like the ESV because it translates it in a sensible way, 70 men. But then it puts down in a footnote uh, the way the Hebrew reads. The, the way the Hebrew reads, it's strange syntax. It just it, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, and so I think that uh, 70 people were struck because they looked into the ark. It, it's either... It's 70 people, 50, uh, 70, it's, it's 70 men, 50,000 men. Well, that's not the way you would say 57,000 in Hebrew. So I, we don't really know. It's a strange piece of text. We don't know how many uh, died there. But some people died. They probably uh, were curious. But after all this, that curiosity that they would dare to look into the ark demonstrates what? That they have not yet grasped the holiness of God. Holiness of God is what led to the ark being taken from them. It's brought back, and they still don't get it. Or rather, you know, and, and listen, look at what they... They, they ask the right question. Who can stand before this holy God? They're finally grasping that he's holy. We're not. But look what they do. They respond exactly like the Philistines have done. Get it out of here. Just go away. It's like the gathering farmers. You remember when, when Jesus cast the legion of demons out of legion and, and he entered the pigs and they rushed down the, the hillside and the people of the town instead of bowing before this great God said, please leave us. And they shooed Jesus away. Ashdod, Gath, Ekron, they all just wanted God to go away. And so does Bet Shemesh the city of the priests. But look, who takes it? Kiriath Jiren. Who's that? Well, that's fascinating too. The, the priestly city sends the ark away. And who takes it? Do you remember in the book of Joshua? I know we didn't, we didn't just go through Joshua together. But do you remember in, in the book of Joshua, they're not supposed to make any treaty with the Canaanites, the people around. They're supposed to just destroy them all. And do you remember the Gibeonites? They, they take some old worn-out wineskins and, and stale bread, and they pretend to be coming from a long distance, right? And they deceive Joshua. And this is such a, a, a regular theme in our book, too. Joshua didn't ask God. And so he ends up making a treaty with them and... They have to honor that treaty. Well, Kiriath-Jerim is a Gibeonite city. Do you recognize then that that is, that is a group of foreigners who have nudged their way into adoption to the people of Israel? So 
however they found themselves among God's people, you know, they were, they were content to be woodcutters and water carriers as long as it meant life. And, you know, here they, they take this great privilege. They've been asked to take the ark, and they, they regard that as such an honor and such a privilege. They jump on the opportunity. But notice what they don't do. The ark and the tabernacle are now separated. Where do you come to worship? Well, the men of Kiriath-Jerim never stepped beyond their bounds. You worship at the tabernacle because that's where the altar is. There is no altar at the ark, right? So they never make too much of themselves, but they do regard it as a great honor to be given this privilege. So this little walled village, that's what Kiriath means, now houses the ark. At the house of Abinadab on the hill. And for 20 years it stays there. And God's going to bless Abinadab and Kiriath Jerim because of the presence of the ark. And that is going to make Israel jealous. Israel's feeling chastised, and rightly so, but, but she's responding just like Philistia, send it away. On the one hand, both the Philistines and the Israelites do grasp the question, who can stand before a holy God? But they don't grasp the answer. He who stands in Christ Jesus. He, Christ alone is holy to stand, worthy to open the scroll. But through faith in him, we're united to him so that as he stands, we stand. Now, the Philistines had been... Off, you know, they, they had not been, like Israel had been told of the mercy of God. The, 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 it's gospel promises that have been given to Abraham and his descendants. The Philistines had not experienced that privilege. That's part of the problem, isn't it? I mean, the Philistines were not among those Canaanite tribes with whom there was no alliance allowed. Now, they were in Israelite land, so they had to go, but there was no rule that they had to destroy every, every Philistine. And yet, the Israelites are not sharing the gospel with them. They're not sharing the, the holiness of God and the goodness of his mercy with them. And the reason they're not drawing the Philistines after God is because they're allowing the world to draw them away from God. So God chastises his people as he promised he would. It wasn't that the Philistines beat them on their own. God had withdrawn his hand and let the Philistines win. And while the people fretted over the loss of the ark, which was meant to lead them to repentance, God showed himself holy among the Philistines. Not everyone rejects the Lord. Some, and notice who they are. They are foreigners among the Israelites. Foreigners, the Gibeonites, they rejoice, they cherish the Lord's presence. So, and guess what? That plan, what Jesus is doing here as he demonstrates that with, with sending the ark into into the Philistine territory where it looks like the Lord has been defeated, but in that defeat, he's actually winning victory for his people. That's a hint to what God is going to do in the cross. But so is placing the ark 
in the hill in the house of Abinadab on the hill to make Israel jealous. That's what Paul's after in Romans 9 through 11. God, God cut Israel off and engrafted us Gentiles in to make his people jealous. Paul asks, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is bold as to say, I've been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. He goes on, so I ask, did they stumble in order to fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, it's because they rejected their Savior that you and I have life. Their trespass led to our life. By no means, rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, how much more will their full inclusion mean? And listen to how that truth affects Paul's own ministry. I mean, he's the apostle of the Gentiles, right? And yet, as he begins that passage, he talks about how his heart goes out to his brothers of his own you know, race, his Jewish brothers. He says, now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. He's talking to us. Paul's talking to us, but he's, he's making reference to the Jews. He says, talking to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. I boast of the fact that God sent me to the Gentiles in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? We don't believe the lie that if you trust in Christ, you're going to get rich and everything is going to be easy. Quite the contrary. So, so what is it that the Jews are supposed to see in us that should make them jealous. It's the love of Christ. Genuine love that flows from the Spirit, born of peace with God. We know forgiveness. We know hope. We have a life that cannot be taken from us. And out of that life, we overflow in joy and love. So, so what's the takeaway in our passage this morning? And it's really rather simple. Don't be a Philistine. If God's correcting you, don't put Dagon back on his dais. Repent. And if you're a chastened Israelite, don't sulk that God's disciplining you. Don't run from him, run to him. Rather, Run to him in, in humble adoration, knowing that he is faithful to forgive. Let us regard the presence of the Lord among us, Emmanuel, God with us. Let us regard that as a treasure and as a joy like Kiriath Jerim. Don't run from God, run to God. That's the point.
Will you pray with me? Oh, Heavenly Father, in the light of your abundant mercy, we ask that you would receive our, our whole bodies, Lord, as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable before you. That is, as you've told us, our reasonable response to your mercy. Father, we don't want to be conformed to this world. By the power of your Holy Spirit, we would have you transform us, Lord, by the renewing of our minds, washing our minds with the pure water of the word. Father, we do rejoice in your love. We delight in your goodness. We long for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Who can stand in your holy place, O Lord? We can, because you have cleansed us. You have made us worthy, and we praise you. We love you. In Jesus' name, we honor and thank you with our whole being. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh,